Uh, Nigan, listen, uh, I've started to become a little concerned about an alarming trend in our podcast. Alarming trend? What are we doing that's so alarming? Well, as you know, we've now done about two dozen podcasts so far. Good on us. And more than a few people have told me that we apparently never disagree about anything. What? Never disagree? That's a problem? It, it could be a problem. Disagreement means conflict. Conflict typically means a uh, bigger audience. I don't want us to start calling each other names or disparaging each other for no reason, but you have to admit we do agree on lots of stuff. Okay, let me let me see this. Uh, I guess you're right. I mean, we agree that climate change is an existential threat. Yep. Uh, we agree that Premier Heather Stephenson hasn't done a great job since taking over for Brian Pallister. Yep. Uh, we agreed that the upcoming provincial election is going to be much closer than people think. Uh, yep. Yeah, we. I guess we even agreed on raisins. Yeah, we agreed. And, uh, you know, not knowing that this was like a huge controversy in the Indigenous community, but we agreed that raisins are good as long as they are Sultana raisins, but that California raisins are no good. I have to tell you, I don't think being of a similar mind about pressing issues that is that bad. I mean, we bring both different perspectives, even when we're agreeing. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure. I think there's something to this agreeing too much. Too much agreement makes the podcast seem predictable, cuts down on the audience we might attract. Okay. okay. Come on. I think you're exaggerating. Conflict for the sake of conflict isn't that big a draw. And besides... Hey, Nigan. Yeah. yeah? Uh, we're disagreeing. I mean, we're disagreeing about how important it is to disagree, but we are disagreeing nonetheless. Ah, yes. The sweet sounds of discord. Now we're podcasting. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Hello, greetings everybody. Uh, bonjour, nice to see everyone. Uh, we're at another episode of the podcast and uh, it's great to see you, Dan, over there. Yep, yeah, same city, but not the same room. We're getting dangerously, perilously close to actually being in the same room again, but this is, you know, having you in the same city is exciting. <laughs> uh it's you know i was away for a little bit again and but you know came back and uh here we have you know just a few weeks ago we were dealing with the issues of lgbtq uh racism homophobia in brandon and now here we are here in winnipeg with louis riel school division a school trustee uh posting terrible things about um more and more homophobia racism that's going on within the city uh i mean you know this is kind of a rise of uh, a certain political dynamic within school trustees or within school districts throughout the province um, but it's also i think a sign of things beginning to change when those who are feeling uh, most privileged are starting to kick and scream about uh, change and so that's interesting yeah no i think it is interesting i mean listen <clears throat> The big uh, dilemma that we face in in uh, news media is like how much oxygen do we blow into these stories? And uh, you know, I think if you were to add up the audience that doesn't care <laughs> with the audience that feels like they've heard too much, uh, then uh, yeah, 
you know, like it's it's tough, but I, I do kind of feel um, that uh, you know, in, in instances where I believe a public institution or body is involved, and they should do something about it. So, a uh, quick bit of uh, uh, background: a trustee from the Louis Rail School Division, uh, a woman named uh, Francine Ch- uh, Champagne. She uh, basically posted a bunch of uh, really offensive stuff on her uh, Facebook page uh, that, uh, you know, uh, as seems to be too often the case, attacked um, LGBTQ plus people, uh, the community, and the worst part, like, spread all kinds of, like, noxious, stupid, you know, conspiracy theories. And uh, so, you know, she did it. And it kind of lingered, you know, for a couple of days. And then thankfully, the, the board of trustees got together and they decided they voted to suspend her for three months. Now, she hasn't said anything to anybody about this, but I did mark the occasion of this suspension with a, yeah, of course, that's the right thing to do. You got to send a message. And, and they really look, didn't. I mean, yeah. the, the, the yeah. trustees in some cases could have done nothing, as you pointed out in your column. Mm. Yeah, well, because we're surrounded by examples of uh, of people doing nothing. The the Brandon um, uh, Library Board entertained some very very abusive uh, and toxic presentations about uh, materials that they felt were uh, uh, unsuitable for being in the library. Um, you know, like the presentations were completely beyond the pale. The board didn't do anything to curb. The person making the presentations and a couple of the, of the members of the library board applauded this woman and her awful conspiracy theories. Uh, I also referenced, and nothing ever happened. Uh, you know, the, the woman who made the presentation uh, seems to have just like evaporated, uh, which I think is a good thing. But I also referenced from a completely different world the situation with the Toronto Blue Jays and one of their relief pitchers, a, a very fair to middling relief pitcher who again posted some really awful stuff to his Instagram page and he made a very qualified apology. And then later on, when he finally answered questions, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because this is, sorry, if oh, you were wondering, at home, yeah, this is career suicide 101. So he met with journalists and he said, yeah, it was wrong for me to post it. I mean, it is totally in keeping with my personal beliefs, but you know, the lesson I've learned I'm is- sorry that my personal beliefs offended anyone. <laughs> I yeah. mean, and then, yeah. you know, and, and I think what the Toronto Blue Jays did, instead of outright releasing this rather nominal player, sent him to the minors as if that's punishment. I mean, the guy yeah. still makes millions of dollars and, and uh, you know, even hundreds of thousands. I don't care. I don't know what they make in the minor leagues, but I can tell you that the guy's still getting played to play a game and uh, is still permitted to put on a uniform affiliated with the club and, and make, make, uh, you know, make a career out of this i mean i hope that the uh, nhl and other organizations you know businesses private public they take note that um simply by demoting people or simply putting them to the side is not dealing with the issue mm-hmm. N- like not allowing nhl players to uh to per- participate in a warm-up where uh, jerseys that the team is trying to promote inclusivity does not deal with mm-hmm. the issue what you do is you simply put it to the side and you actually tolerate it. You hold it up and you recognize it as being 
Um, when somebody is allowed to not participate, you're simply saying that they're unique and that they're allowed to say what they wish and that you, your club, are affirming that. So, Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that's surprising, and I will a uh, little shout out, uh, who I'm, someone who I'm sure listens to the podcast, um, Globe Mail uh, sports columnist Kath L. Kelly, who I think might be the best pure sports columnist in, in the country. I really love his stuff. But anyways, he made the point that this guy, Anthony Bass of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, you know, when he did what he did and, you know, when he did it in the week leading up to in Toronto, where pride is a huge economic and political force in that city, um, you know, they uh, they tolerated it. And then they finally designate, designated him for assignment and they claimed it was a baseball decision. It wasn't about this other thing. But Cathal Kelly said, like, this guy's like a schmo, right? Like he's not a very good baseball player. He's, you know, he's not making big money. Like keeping him and suffering the the negative publicity is more work than getting rid of him. Like, what are you doing? And I think that that's the, like, you know, it's sort of gotten to the point where, like, NHL teams that fail to discipline their players that bypassed, uh, you know, pride activities. Like, are they really that important to your team? That you would that you you want to suffer, you know the the condemnation of because more people support pride than don't support it. Way more yeah. people support yeah. pride. So and, like you know, yeah. like I also think it's it's moderately um, offensive in the dialogue that I read throughout the country around uh, people talking about this as a nominal player and so forth. That you know somehow dealing with that. Uh, you know, like imagine if this was like a major force on the Blue Jays or a major force, a, a big time sports or like a Wayne Gretzky who said something like this. Uh, then I think the industry would have to deal with it in a much more direct way. And uh, perhaps we're going to see what the NHL will do things with the issue of Joel Quenville and and the ways in which, uh, how, treat, you know, sexual abuse is treated and people who allow it to happen or participate in it or spread false views, as we see. Uh this is certainly an ongoing story and something that uh, that not only is dealt with in sports, but also in industry and certainly school trustees throughout the country. Um, there's also something that's interesting that's happening in the, in the uh, city or in the province that we want to talk about. And we're going to call this our butterflies and mermen section of the podcast. First time ever. Maybe we'll revisit this again. But you have a really interesting story about butterflies in Assiniboine Park. Well, yeah. Uh... I, I got to tell you, first off, the, the Assiniboine Park, uh, the leaf, the biome uh, or the biodome or whatever it is, at, like it, it's a beaut, like architecturally, it's quite striking. I have zero interest in going to see this, um, you know, honestly. And it's not that I haven't, I've been to similar, I suppose, uh, you know, attractions, other places in the world, but I, I just find that, um with all of the things that we could do, all the attractions that we could add to the city, building a building to contain an artificial environment while the outside environment suffers seems to me to be a little odd. So I was, I wouldn't say happy, but I was intrigued, you know, recently when federal inspectors at Canadian Food Inspection Agency shut down the biome uh, largely because some very exotic bugs including butterflies, escaped their containment area and and were threatening to escape the biome itself. 
And apparently these things, if they do escape, they could really like dramatically affect the local, you know, ecology. And, uh, and I just thought, oh, you know, once again, proof when you try to play God, <laughs> I was going to make a colonization <laughs> reference, but uh... <laughs> you know, you try to play God, you know, you mess around with stuff you shouldn't mess around with. And the next thing you know, like, is this, you know, this is the beginning of some Japanese, you know, you know, monster movie, right? That the, the, you know, the butterflies escape the biome, they, you know, genetically mutate, and then they become like 30 foot high giant, you know, butterflies attacking Portage in Maine. And I, oh, I, this is spiraled very quickly, but um, that, you know, like it is true that in conservation, it, it is really oftentimes a life or death situation for species that are uh, inherent to the area. I remember one time walking around the forks uh, when we were developing the South Point, it's now called Nijo Sibin, but the, uh, the area that is supposed to be indigenous uh, over at the forks there. And as we were doing the installations for the statues and for the other, the lodge that we built there, I, I was working with uh, a botanist and this botanist, uh, we were talking about the plants in the area. And he said, uh, this area is about 90% invasive species. And so about 90% of the vegetation at what's now the forks yeah. are species that were brought here from other places. And these are, you know, oftentimes what we now know as, as grass or weeds or, you know, and all the medicines that were in that area, there's not many of them left. And so replanting is actually a big sort of source of yeah. indigenization of the area. Yeah. This is, of course, the issue, I think, when we start to do these zoos or biodomes and we bring all of these things from the world, uh, you have to take it very seriously. Yeah. Um, well, you know. So this isn't the only example of a, you know, what were you thinking moment? Like, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe this next story, but but in your exhaustive, uh, you know, research and investigation of, uh, you know, the indigenous social media, the... the <laughs> or just my life, I just open it up. Oh, okay, all right. But um, yeah, so you came across... You know, I got to tell you, I didn't see this one coming. Uh, I'm not saying, like, I do miss trends. I didn't think professional wrestling was coming back. It would be really big in the 90s, but it did. So I, I'm not, like, a soothsayer, but I didn't see this next story coming. There, there is the most amazing trend, and I encourage anyone to go out there and, uh, you know, what, there's something interesting that happened during the pandemic. During the pandemic, uh, all these First Nations set up check stops across the country, and what they did was, is they started to sort of speak to each other because no one could speak to one another during the pandemic. But um, what they did is these kind of uh, flash mobs or what they call dance offs, right? And so people would challenge each other's check stop across the country and there would be this huge explosion of uh, flash mobs at check stops on First Nations across the country. You probably don't see it, but you can look it up if you want um, on uh, places, you know, social media and so on. But there is an interesting trend that happened this week, and I think partly because the North, uh, there's two things that are happening in the North. One is the forest fire situation and the flooding, the kind of uh, constant trauma that's happening within the North. But then the second is, is there is this uh, need for the North to sort of engage and in, in, uh, think about humor and how do we deal with issues of trauma. And so uh, in almost you know dozens of First Nations this week, you'll see that 
uh, men are dressing up like mermen <laughs> and then putting pictures on social media. So but just setting morning, themselves on rocks or setting themselves on rocks as mm -hmm. sort of sunbathing mermen and then posting funny pictures. And, you know, uh, and I don't mean, don't feel that this is a stereotype. Indigenous men are not small men. <laughs> they are rather, uh, you know, we are healthy men, bigger men. And healthy is a good word. Yeah. Men uh, with a fishtail sunbathing on a rock and then posting uh, Poplar River First Nation, Pegwis First Nation, a pocket of wagon. Um, it does a few things. One is it's very funny. And then second is, is it's really kind of playing with some of these uh, fantasies I think people have of, you know, indigenous life. And, and, and then, you know, on top of that, we also have mermaid clans that within our communities, these are traditional stories that we tell. So there's some really interesting intersections that are happening. And uh, this really being, brings to a, a conclusion our very first butterfly and merman section of the podcast. Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, you know, me being me, you know, the the non-Indigenous guy, like, I'm just, I'm not going to say anything about the merman, except, no, I do want to say, like, you be you, brother, you know, like, like it's, uh, uh, and the, because the photos, like, so that, and, you know, people can drive what they want, but the, the photos are deliberately funny. I mean, they're hilarious. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, I mean, maybe it's just like a whole new uh, stream of uh, drag. I don't know. Uh, but it is, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> which, and I, you know, I think this is going to be, this is a great segue, or at least an interesting segue into our exclusive interview with Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser. I'm just imagining that all of uh, Minister Fraser's staff that are listening to the podcast uh, are going to go, yeah, you did you did uh, mermen and homophobia and uh, killer butterflies. That was your lead in to the, you know, exclusive interview. But actually, so Minister Fraser was in town uh, making some announcements. He had a very busy week, uh, made a lot of great announcements, which we talk about. And, uh, you know, he's really, he's a very interesting guy. Um, you know, he's a uh, uh, young fella, uh, but, uh, you know, like he's, he's clearly uh, deeply engaged with his uh, portfolio. And I mean, in a way, immigration and you'll see from some of the things he's doing, immigration really is a like it has has a touch point in a lot of big social issues, a lot of explosives. So yeah. yeah, so uh, so we yeah we're very happy to have that uh, conversation with uh, Minister Fraser, which we should begin right now. Right now. Really pleased today to have uh, Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser with us. Uh, and it should be noted that uh, Minister Fraser has come to Winnipeg. That's a big thing for Winnipeggers when you come to see them face to face. And uh, so welcome to Winnipeg and thanks for doing the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Looking forward to the conversation. So uh, like first off, you are federal immigration minister. You are also the MP for Central Nova in Nova Scotia, which is a riding with a deep, deep uh conservative and progressive conservative uh, lineage, uh, Peter McKay, Elmer McKay, and uh, Brian Mulrooney briefly, 
before he you know went and got his uh, his heels back in a uh, Quebec riding. And uh, so, uh, I guess the question everybody wants to know is like, what the hell happened? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know what? It was, uh, of course, 2015 was um, a unique election uh, in Atlanta, Canada, as much as anywhere else. Um, there was a huge appetite uh, for change on the heels of uh, the previous government's time in office. Uh, and uh, the Prime Minister, of course, was presenting a, a, a very different vision for Canada that, that really spoke to people. Um, but it's not as though there was some magic ingredient now over the last three election mm. cycles. Uh, politics is about understanding what um, people are concerned with in their own lives and offering them uh, a vision that coincides with their, their hopes for a better future for themselves and their families. Uh, so when you're sitting at somebody's kitchen table, if you're going to be spouting about uh, my party's so great for X, Y, Z reasons, and that's why you should support us, uh, those reasons better be informed by what that person's thinking about. Right. Uh, and it turns out, like many communities across Canada, uh, people are less concerned with who gives the spicier remark in the House of Commons uh, and are more concerned with whether you get a plan to get them a doctor, uh, whether their kids are going to find a job in their community, uh, whether there's going to be a chance for their parents to age, where their uh, grandkids uh, are going to live, uh, whether we've got policies that will help protect the environment. And my sense is if uh, we continue to focus on the things that matter to people, um, people will uh, reward us with an, with an opportunity to represent them in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no magic bullet. Uh, no. You, you talk to people and you take your direction from the people who uh, send you to Ottawa. And uh, the minute you forget that, uh, they'll remind you in the next election cycle. Okay, well, you know, there's another election coming up pretty soon, so don't forget it. Not this. I mean, you know, three in a row, so you can't uh, can't forget. So, uh, in your your the commission of your duties as immigration minister, though, you you've, uh, are you is this just Winnipeg and then back to Ottawa? Are you barnstorming the country, making announcements? What's going on here? Uh, I spend a lot of time on the road. Uh, this particular trip, uh, we uh, started Monday morning in. Uh, Nova Scotia in my, my home. Uh, I spent Monday through the day in, in the House of Commons in Ottawa. I uh, got here uh, yesterday evening. I'm here today and tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night it's Toronto. Uh, then I'm there for a few days. Then uh, back to Ottawa. Uh, another stop in Toronto and then home again. Uh, so wow. that that's pretty typical. Uh, you spend a lot of time on the road and for any stint over a couple of weeks you try to uh, make sure you're not just in the the biggest urban centers, but yeah. you're, you're visiting communities across the country. So um, here today, we'll touch briefly on. You did have an announcement today that actually, uh, according to all uh, reliable metrics, got some pretty good coverage. Thirteen uh, countries uh, will now uh, residents of those countries will now be allowed to travel uh, to Canada without visas. So uh, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that's been planned for a long time. It's, it's the thing I was struck by is it's kind of a, it, it, at this time and with all the things that are going on, it kind of came a little left field for me. So what's the origin story of this and, and, uh, and what is the Canadian government trying to communicate through this gesture? So we've been working on this for uh, a long time. Uh, this uh, policy represents a, a, a really significant change from the ordinary way Canada has processed visas. And for those who aren't familiar with immigration policy, uh, uh, this is the way we give permission for people to come visit us in Canada. Um, one of the things that a lot of people may not realize is most countries in the world, Canada included up until now, have had a, a very heavily uh, focused immigration policy around which country a traveler comes from, 
rather than information about the specific traveler. Uh, the decision that we made today, which builds upon a pilot that we launched in 2017 with Brazil, uh, focuses more on the individual traveler. Uh, by dealing with trusted travelers who have a history of uh, following the rules, uh, passing the uh, process to be uh, approved for a visa, uh, we're going to be able to do some pretty remarkable things. So this policy is not visa-free travel for every single right. person. Uh, it's for people who have held a Canadian visa in the past 10 years or who hold a current American visa. Uh, and we have a very similar security screening process with the Americans. In fact, we borrow their system for uh, much of the, uh, the security screening process. Um, what this is going to do is transform a process that used to cost uh, families hundreds of dollars, uh, sometimes take them a few months, uh, and instead allow them from their phones to pay seven bucks and be approved in a few minutes. Uh, when we did this with Brazil, we saw a 40% increase in tourism from the country. Wow. Uh, we saw families get to be with their loved ones in far larger numbers, far qu more quickly than was possible before. And we also saw uh, about 40% of the uh, cases that were being processed in Sao Paulo didn't have to be processed anymore because people were actually being approved automatically through the uh, digital so system. So that's easing the, back the, the burden there. And freeing up resources to process other visas more quickly as well. So from an internal governance point of view, uh, from a family reunification point of view, or most importantly in this context, from an economic point of view, uh, this is going to uh, be a, a massive win, and it's going to set the stage for future countries to come on board as well. Uh, and even in the air travel sector, uh, what we saw after we launched uh, the program with Brazil was direct flights uh, prop up, uh, pop up coming to Canada and more convenient routes uh, in addition to the flights that weren't direct. Uh, Air Canada has already expressed enthusiasm about the announcement today, and I expect other airlines are going to be looking at opportunities to capitalize on big travel markets that will help drive the tourism economy in Canada at a time it's desperately needed when so many operators were hamstrung by the uh, pandemic when all of their customers disappeared. Right. So, it, you know, again, like it, um, especially when I read the background about the uh, pilot project with Brazil, I mean, it does make uh, a lot of sense. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the immigration file is one of those files where it can be quiet for a very, very long time. And then all of a sudden it can somehow get dragged kicking and screaming into other debates, other political debates. So one of the other things you're working on, and this is something that's upcoming, uh, is uh, the government is uh, taking steps, as I understand it, to uh, partner or to work uh, in concert with a uh, trusted partner who is uh, primarily their objective is to help refugees uh, fleeing countries because they're being persecuted for their uh, sexual orientation. Um, now that is, so that is an announcement, uh, it hasn't been made yet, but something we're going to discuss a little bit right now. Um, the, um, you know, that is something that could get dragged into. Uh, uh, like it could be collateral, not damage necessarily, but collaterally drawn into another debate. The country is transfixed right now with debates about gender and sexual orientation. Um, first of all, why don't you tell me about the initiative and then tell me whether or not you're, you have any concerns about the mood of the country right now and how it might affect us. Uh, sure, I'll start with the policy and then I'll give you my, sure. my assessment of the uh, political discussion that I expect will follow. And, and I'm optimistic in Canada that it will not be the same that it would be in many other parts of the world for very good reasons. 
so first, it's really important that we understand why Canada uh, has a policy around accepting uh, refugees. Um, we want to do our part to help provide safe haven to some of the world's most vulnerable people. The reality is that I don't think Canadians appreciate what an outsized role Canada plays when it comes to resettling people uh, permanently. But I also don't think we appreciate uh, the challenging circumstances that we don't face that many other countries in the world uh, deal with because of their geography. So at risk of oversimplifying the, uh, the challenge um, or the, the nature of the, uh, that geographic question that I just described, uh, we're surrounded by three oceans. And the United States is at our southern border, which is the biggest magnet for people in the world and has been for quite some time. Um, other countries in the world have millions of people who can walk across a border uh, when they're fleeing vulnerable circumstances. Uh, my sense is the uh, lottery we've won by geography in terms of our ability to manage the influx of people who come in by giving permission to those that we, we want to approve uh, is something that begs of us uh, a bigger contribution to uh, items of humanitarian concern than other countries of the world who are forced to deal with it by circumstance. Uh, and through the pandemic, we really demonstrated how strong our refugee resettlement programs are. In 2020 and 2021, Canada resettled about one-third of the total that were resettled globally. Mm -hmm. uh, these are gobsmacking numbers when you compare it to other countries in the world who agree notionally that resettling refugees is something that's important. Um, whether it's our response to Syria, to Afghanistan, more recently to Ukraine, my, my sense is Canadians are actually quite proud uh, to be providing safe haven uh, to those who were in need of protection. Uh, the second part of your question, which touched on the uh, political conversation, uh, is one that if it came down to this becoming a, a, a divisive social issue, my expectation is the vast majority of Canadians would recognize offering protection to those who are fleeing persecution as a result of their sexual orientation or gender identity is, is a good thing. Um, but what I, I, I hope the focus remains upon is that when a person is vulnerable, uh, regardless of the reason, when they're going mm -hmm. to be persecuted, uh, when they're going to face violence, oppression, uh, torture, or death, uh, there should be an opportunity uh, for the world community to provide that protection. Uh, the alternative is to have uh, people suffer uh, greatly or, or to have them go into an international refugee system which is overburdened, somewhat clumsy, and will result in the certain denial of uh, political, economic, social, and cultural rights that I think most of us take for granted every yeah. day. Uh, that's not a good solution. Uh, so we're working with uh, a partner organization uh, to identify people from the uh, community of uh, those who are being persecuted on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity to identify some of the people who are most vulnerable, particularly mm -hmm. those who are vulnerable for their defense of human rights of others. Um, this approach recognizes that a lot of people from this community uh, are very reticent to yeah. even explain to governments why they're vulnerable for fear they'll be persecuted by the person they report to. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also dealing with a global resettlement infrastructure that's severely hamstrung following COVID-19. Mm -hmm. The UNHCR is a wonderful organization, but their ability to turn the switch off and back on both during the pandemic and during the retreat mm -hmm. by the United States during the Trump administration's time in office on supporting resettlement has mm -hmm. really uh, hampered their ability to operate the way that 
they once did and, and hopefully will again. So this demands of, of me uh, the ability to find partner organizations who can fill that gap. Like the uh, Rainbow... Rainbow Railroad, Railroad. is yeah. a perfect example. And to bring them into the, uh, the recipe of what it makes to have good uh, immigration and, and uh, a refugee policy in Canada uh, is going to have a, a very meaningful impact and provide protection um, to people who are fleeing horrific circumstances. I, I look at the law that the... Uh, president of Uganda just signed into effect um, that could punish uh, homosexuality by death. Um, I don't think that's reasonable. And I think if we want to uh, demonstrate we're a world leader um, on humanitarian issues, uh, we got to put our money where our mouth is right. and work with people who have knowledge on the ground. And this is a great opportunity. So th this doesn't require, there are no amendments to legislation or anything that, that this is required. And as I understand it, the government, uh, the uh, Canadian government, already entertained refugee claims if the claimant was, uh, you know, uh, being persecuted because of uh, gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, so, uh, working with the Rainbow Railroad, uh, what is the what's the practical impact? Does it mean, uh, you know, more people at greater access? Uh, well, you know, yeah, just uh, explain how it's going to sort of uh, result in in sort of a, uh, an impact on the in, on the number of people coming to Canada? Sure. So it, it won't result in more people mm -hmm. uh, coming, but it will uh, that we can take a decision to do that separately. <coughs> um, but it, it will result in more people from this particular uh, community that come, and the decision on whether more people overall should, should uh, mm -hmm. be given protection uh, is something that we bake into our annual immigration levels plan. Uh, so at risk of oversimplifying, there's two different ways a person can become a refugee that receives Canada's protection. Uh, you can show up here and make an asylum claim, or you can be referred into our programs, typically by an organization like the United mm -hmm. Nations High Commission for Refugees. Uh, what we're doing is allocating some of the spaces that normally go to uh, a large international partner who would refer people into mm -hmm. our program uh, to a domestic partner who has knowledge of people's vulnerable circumstances on the ground. And their own network of connections. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where the strength of Ram Rainbow Railroad exists. Their ability to be plugged into the community on the ground and understand mm -hmm. who is vulnerable, who is facing persecution, who's at risk of death, is something that will be incredibly valuable in terms of not only identifying the vulnerable people, but identifying them quickly while there's still an opportunity to provide protection uh, before some disastrous uh, circumstance will arise. Uh, by working with domestic partners with local knowledge, our ability to operate more nimbly uh, mm -hmm. will allow us to get protection to the people who are most in need uh, from a community that's been uh, for too long ignored uh, when it comes to refugee right. resettlement. Now, I mean, I, I want to say I agree with your analysis that overall um, Canadians have given every indication on every other issue that would be connected to this, that they would be uh, sympathetic and supportive. The uh, you know, from a journalist perspective, that's not really the 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 culture war that's being fought in Canada right now. Isn't really uh, sort of a, a about divisive public opinion. It's about the volume of public opinion coming from what I've identified, and I think others have identified as a a vocal, uh, angry, and somewhat toxic minority. Um, I honestly, and then your thoughts on this would be interesting, I honestly, <laughs> I can't see how this vocal and toxic minority won't latch on to this announcement. Uh, like, I, I just, I, I, I want to know, like, if you, you do have some fears, though, that 
this initiative and this organization could end up becoming a chew toy for some very angry people right now. Well, let's not pretend that the uh, people who might be angry that, um, that gay people exist are not already acting in hateful ways. Uh, in Nova Scotia, a couple of weeks ago, we had incidents of pride flags being torn apart uh, and thrown in public areas for people to see. Um, the friends and family members I have who come from uh, the, uh, the queer community uh, will give you as much time as you're willing to, uh, to take uh, to hear stories about instances mm-hmm. of discrimination that they faced. Um, the reality is uh, we can't use uh, anger about uh, uh, treating people equally as an excuse not to do the right thing. Uh, my sense is if uh, our guiding star uh, remains uh, helping people who are vulnerable, um, over a long enough time horizon, uh, people will come to understand that we've taken the right approach. Uh, if anything, uh, I think we need to demonstrate that in response to the anger that already exists, uh, that we're putting our arms around uh, vulnerable Canadians and vulnerable people around the mm-hmm. world who will one day be Canadians. Uh, so from, from my perspective, the debate exists in isolation, uh, but we can't have uh, the fear of a difficult public conversation with an angry minority uh, who doesn't like people on the basis of their sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't formulate public policy or choose not to move forward to accommodate groups who have those uh, uh, unfortunate views. Um, by moving forward, by helping vulnerable people, uh, in the face of, I'm sure, some criticism, uh, mm-hmm. I think we will demonstrate to the community who's impacted uh, that they really do have neighbours who care about them, uh, and I think every Canadian Canadian deserves to hear that. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, perhaps it's the uh, you, you may know uh, working in Ottawa around the National Press Gallery, the journalists are often driven by the dark forces of mischief and other things. Um, and not that I'm trying to downplay the implications of it, but I will tell you that uh, when I first learned about what you guys are doing with the Rainbow Railroad, I am absolutely dying to see what the Conservative Party reaction is, uh, if any. Um, it, I, I think the smart money would say they might choose to die on other hills than this issue. But, I, you know, are you a little intrigued to see how the, uh, the Conservatives respond to this? You know, it's a funny thing. I, I watch the politics of uh, social issues closely, and I anticipate what opposition parties might do. Um, when it comes to my own portfolio uh, and decisions that I have the control uh, over making, um, it's not something that in- informs me as much as it does when it's something that plays out in the national media headlines. Uh, from my perspective, um, the last thing on my mind is uh, how the Conservatives will react uh, to me welcoming people who are uh, vulnerable because of their sexual orientation. Um, At the same time, uh, your question comes in the context of uh, a press conference that Mr. Polyev gave the other day where he uh, indicated uh, that he was supportive of Pride season uh, but refused to answer whether he would actually show up for a Pride parade. Um, I'm somebody who, my first Pride Parade, I think it was 2008 in Calgary. Uh, There was almost uh, nobody there uh, from the group that I was with. Uh, But the people who were with the other different groups were very, very happy to have had um, some inclusion in the community and to demonstrate that they they belong there. Um, I don't know why it's controversial uh, to walk in a Pride Parade. I feel like that ship has sailed 
20 years ago uh, mm-hmm. in this country. Uh, but um, uh, I'll leave it to uh, Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives to figure out how they'll respond to this. Uh, but if it's um, if it, the response is anything but um, support for the, the vulnerable who are seeking a better life in Canada, uh, I'll be sorely disappointed. Uh, I do not intend uh, to solicit a political fight uh, over immigration right. uh, or over inclusion. Um, should others decide that they want such a fight, um, they should be prepared uh, to deal with the consequences, not from their opponents in Parliament, but from Canadians and communities. So it, it, it is the thing about immigration, though, that um, like it, it, it can be a volatile and unpredictable portfolio. Um, I mean, it, you know, I'm dating myself now, but I was, uh, you know, uh, covering Parliament Hill back in the 90s when, you know, the, I'll call it the head tax. I know there was a more eloquent name, but where the Liberal government of those days, uh, you know, really did, uh, like it had trouble straddling the different lines of public opinion on immigration. And, and I'm not, maybe you think I am exaggerating, but it is, I think we see all the time where, uh, you know, the, the issue of immigration, total numbers of people coming in, aspects of the program, drives strong and sometimes unpredictable emotions. Fair enough? Uh, There's no question. Um, But my sense is um, public opinion has shifted, and and we should be wary that it can always shift back. Mm. Uh, But my sense is compared to even the time when I was a kid, um, the debate around immigration seemingly was framed more as uh, the need to be supportive for uh, celebrating multiculturalism, to be welcoming towards people who were different, and, and it made us feel good that we were a welcoming country. Um, now, uh, some of the people who may have even previously been opposed to immigration are starting to see the consequences of uh, uh, lacking ambition on immigration. Uh, the reality is Canada needs more people, certainly for social reasons, uh, but for economic and demographic reasons. Um, Fifty years ago, there were seven workers for every retired person in this country. Uh, today, there's three. Uh, my region in Atlanta, Canada has a little more than two. Um, I come from a community where over the course of my life, I watched schools close because young families moved away from rural Nova Scotia. And the mental health unit at the largest hospital in my community uh, closed when a psychiatrist moved for another community. Uh, the consequences of not embracing population growth are severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they result in people not being able to find meaningful work and a reduction of public services. Canadians don't want that. Uh, we're also living at a time uh, when we've got a, a significantly aging population. Uh, that's going to have uh, both an impact on the level of services, particularly in health that are required, but it's also going to pull people out of the workforce mm-hmm. for the next number of years in enormous numbers. Uh, employers are leading the charge, uh, but you don't have to pour over the labor force statistics survey every month like I do mm-hmm. uh, to understand that we need workers in this country. Go down Main Street of virtually any community in Canada. Um, despite Canada having one of the strongest economic recoveries from COVID-19 of any advanced economy in the world, uh, there's 700,000 jobs available right now that need to be filled with all the training in the world, with all the policies to bring in marginalized groups to allow them fairer opportunities to participate in the economy with whatever supports uh, we can bring in to engage indigenous communities, black communities, newcomer communities, uh, Canadians with disabilities. The people who are here now will not be able to fill the gaps right. in the short term, let alone the skills gap in the long term. So this is as much an economic issue as it is a social one. So um, if I might, I think there's a really good example of, at least in, within the bubble that is Parliament Hill, 
about how immigration uh, occasionally gets used as a bit of a volleyball. So, um, and you'll you'll correct and refine my facts if I have it wrong. But there is a there was a private member's bill proposed by a conservative senator um, that has received some support from NDP and Liberal members uh, that would really remove some of the the silly and arbitrary rules that prevent um, uh, the children of Canadians who are born abroad from achieving full citizenship. And it is, like, I think if you explain the issue, a lot of people would be shocked that this is even an issue. Um, so the Conservative senator proposed it. It received uh, some uh, all-party support. And then uh, suddenly now the Conservatives are filibustering the private member's bill at committee to stop it coming forward. I'm not saying this is the perfect example of how immigration gets bent into whatever shape somebody wants it, in, you know, within that bubble in Parliament Hill, but but is, there's a little, it's a little perverse actually what's going on. Yeah, so let, let me first address maybe what's happening uh, from a factual point of view and then give my, my sense of what we're dealing with in terms of the politics because I think it's, it's unclear to me what's yeah. motivating the, the conservative position right now. Uh, so it's Bill S-245 for those who want to dig in and uh, uh, learn a little bit more. But it deals with an issue that is colloquially known as lost Canadians. So there's different cohorts uh, of people in this country that either had citizenship and lost it or ought to have had citizenship and weren't given an opportunity. Uh, and the bill, in my view, was motivated, uh, this is uh, Conservative Senator Yona Martin's bill, but by very good intentions that wanted to solve certain problems that I also am interested in solving. Uh, it was unique to see uh, Liberal and NDP members come together to agree with the principles that Senator Martin had been trying to move forward with, uh, but then add to the bill to solve additional problems. One of those unique problems uh, is referred to as the um, first generation limit or the second generation born abroad. Uh, this manifests itself in very weird ways. So I know people uh, from my community at home, and I've met people from across Canada, uh, who were born to Canadian parents, uh, moved to the United States when they were an infant, uh, and returned to Canada when they were one, uh, who then grew up in Canada, uh, cheer for uh, their favorite uh, hockey team, whether it's right. the Leafs or the Habs. They go to Tim Hortons when they can. Uh, they're every people bit who as should Canadian. cheer for the Habs in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm a Habs fan since I could walk, so it's. Oh, uh, oh, okay. I think maybe we're going to have to rethink the whole interview. Okay, yeah, let's yeah, just keep right, going. That's right. We'll just well, keep going. And and no no doubt, there's somebody in Winnipeg who's uh, who cheers for the Jets here. Uh, the um, uh, in this set of circumstances, uh, but the reality is, um, uh, these are people who are Canadian, uh, who grew up Canadian, were born to Canadian parents, who were raised in Canada. Uh, if they, as an adult, uh, move to the United States to study, temporarily even, mm -hmm. uh, and they have a child, uh, that child does not benefit uh, from citizenship. Um, there's actually members of parliament. There's one I'm thinking of now in a, another party, and I, I don't want to signal who it is because I don't know how comfortable sure. they are being identified. Um, one of their children was born earlier than expected uh, while he was traveling for a couple of weeks, uh, born in the United States. Uh, that child cannot pass on citizenship to one of their children should their ch child be born outside of Canada. 
uh, despite the fact that they will be raised in Canada, they will grow up and become an adult in Canada. And uh, solving this problem, I, I think, is very important to do. And uh, the committee members have found a unique way to move forward with this reform uh, by uh, aligning the residency requirement with what we require of permanent residents who move to this country to become citizens. Um, I'm not so that that's what's going on. Right. Uh, in terms of your question on um, this being a political football or, or volleyball, I think, as you described it. Uh, it's unclear to me what the motivation is. I, I don't know that this is a principled opposition to um, having more inclusive citizenship policies uh, or if it's merely uh, the end of the parliamentary session and trying to interfere with uh, the government getting things done. Uh, that would be a great question for some of the conservative members on the committee. Well, it, so a few hours before uh, we were able to sit down and talk, um, uh, one of the members of the committee, uh, conservative MP Michelle Rempel Garner, who's well known to people in uh, Manitoba as a native, once a, you know, a, a Manitoban elected official, um, she basically her quote was: "These are substantive amendments which materially affect the Citizenship Act, so they deserve scrutiny, and we are scrutinizing them." Uh, so the concern she's identified is they believe the, citi the Citizenship Act is undergoing major changes and, and I suppose implying that there's kind of a backdoor uh, attempt to, to do that. Is that, uh, is, do you think that's politics? Uh, look, f first of all, um, Michelle is somebody I've got respect for. She, I like her personally. We get on well, and we've worked actually very well together on a few uh, in a few uh, instances uh, recently. And so, Michelle, if you're listening, hello. Uh, get, get good to chat. Yeah, um, I really want Michelle to listen. So maybe we'll have to send a note through and say that we've been talking about you. And yeah, you should listen. And, yeah. and and I'm happy to have this conversation with her and others in in the House of Commons as well. Um, that there are serious changes uh, to the Citizenship Act that are being proposed as a result of the mm -hmm. amendments uh, that have been put forward by committee members. Uh, but uh, I sense that there is more than um, uh, the usual scrutiny applied to bills. Uh, when I see uh, people who tend to uh, talk out the clock, who go far beyond the normal number of meetings that would be required to uh, e even assess uh, uh, full-scale reforms through government legislation, um, it, it seems as though uh, there is an effort to um, ensure the reforms don't pass because they realize that they don't have the numbers on the committee, so they'll implement uh, mm -hmm. a delay to prevent the committee from getting anything done. Um, my sense is that uh, filibusters might be appropriate if you're trying to call into question uh, some abusive process by the government of the day. Uh, but when it comes to an objection on the substance, ask your questions, allow the witnesses to give testimony, uh, and then vote uh, the way your conscience demands, but live with the results, uh, because no one party is entitled to commandeer uh, the House of Commons or its committees. Uh, and my sense is we would be better served if uh, we gave the opportunity uh, for the process to play out mm -hmm. and have members register their substantive concerns uh, and, and hopefully improve the bill. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what the committee process is designed for, and I think we've got an opportunity to make serious improvements to this bill. Well, um, you know, uh, I have a, a brother who has a, one of his children was born in Atlanta while he was working there, and uh, for the sake of her and uh, for her children, if she decides to do that, uh, I really hope uh, someone get. You know, I'm going to say it because I know 
uh, Adam bleeps it out. So I hope they get their shit together. Uh, maybe we can let that one go through because it was really, it's very important. And it's, and it's relevant. It's and relevant. Timely. It's a relevant shit. Yes, and, and, and I think I may have yeah. just met the Jets fan with that uh, particular uh, anecdote. So yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, the prophecy has come true. Um, so um, again, the, like there are so many, we were talking about this before we sat down for the recording part. Uh, there's like a gazillion issues. I mean, really, uh, first of three-part series with uh, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser. Uh, but the one that really, like, you really lit up when I brought it up, the Globe and Mail wrote an editorial recently with a what I thought was like a tremendously good uh, suggestion. So that's why I'm mentioning them. Um, they noted, and it's true, in a city like Winnipeg, we feel this. Uh, this is a story that arises almost every week. The uh, Canada is accepting more uh, immigrants through all various streams than ever before. And we haven't reached 500,000, I believe, but 500,000 is, it's out there on the dashboard close. Um, at the same time, though, the people that are working on resettlement and, and uh, support, uh, the biggest problem is that uh, there is, there's already a housing shortage in Canada, affordable housing shortage. It, it's extended to, obviously, to uh, people coming in through immigration programs. So their suggestion is either, is to marry the, the two initiatives, either an immigration stream of the housing program or a housing program stream of the immigration program. So um, the, the government is active on both files. Is there, is there actually, uh, is that just an, the suggestion from an enthusiastic layman? Uh, layperson, which is what journalists are, uh, or is there some something to that? Uh, there is something to this. Uh, the reality is, we know that uh, bringing in. Uh, well, I want to be careful. Uh, I should say welcoming five hundred thousand new permanent residents. It's by twenty twenty five, by the way. Yeah, um, is something that will serve Canada's economic interest. Uh, but it's not enough to get people here. You have to make sure they're set up for success. Um, Let's keep in mind as well that uh, of the 500,000 when we get there, uh, about half are, are people who are already here that came in as temporary residents, international students, uh, workers, uh, or people who maybe came to visit and are, are transitioning to a longer term status. Um, I want to be really careful here though because the solution to our housing challenges um, cannot be and cannot be perceived to be to shut the door on newcomers. Um, and it's really important that we adopt smart immigration policies that are actually going to help alleviate some of the social pressures. I would add healthcare, by the way, uh, to this conversation. Um, but we do need to uh, improve the way with which we build out the absorptive capacity of communities in healthcare, in housing, and, and frankly, we need to better mirror our immigration policies to the industrial strategy for Canada to make sure that we're setting ourselves mm -hmm. up for success over the course of generations. So. There's some things that we've done, and I'll signal right. where, where I hope we're, we're going to go. Um, some of the things that we're doing to encourage uh, people to come to parts of the country that have greater capacity include regional immigration programs. We've significantly increased the provincial nominee uh, program allocations, mm -hmm. so provinces can decide uh, who's coming and, and in which communities they're going to live. Uh, we've increased the numbers for the Atlantic immigration program significantly. And as an Atlantic Canadian, uh, it's unique for us to be feeling housing pressures because that's not been our experience outside of Halifax, more or less, right. uh, though it's, it's getting there. Uh, we've got the rural and northern immigration pilot program that we hope to extend and improve upon uh, that will encourage more people to go to communities that have capacity. But one of the unique aspects of immigration 
is that if we bring the people in with the skills that are necessary uh, to build houses, to work in healthcare, or to work in strategic growth uh, opportunities in key sectors, we can actually have more people alleviate some of these social mm. pressures rather than exacerbate them. Uh, we made uh, an announcement just a few days ago uh, about new targeted immigration draws that will be focused on the sector that a person mm. works in. Rather than just taking the highest scoring applicant, we're going to take the highest scoring applicant in the sectors that are in the greatest demand. There's five categories, uh, healthcare, uh, tech, transportation, agriculture, and the skilled trades. Right. The purpose of including the skilled trades is to make sure we're bringing in more people to build houses. Uh, when we talk to developers, uh, once they get their uh, municipal zoning approvals, uh, uh, municipal approvals and, and zoning mm -hmm. issues taken care of, the biggest issue that they run into is uh, not having the labor and talent that they need to actually go complete the projects that they know they have demand for. By actually bringing folks in uh, who have the skills we need, we can build more houses more quickly. Um, of course, this creates a, a circular conversation about where are they going to live when they come here. <laughs> but on balance, a home builder is going to build more homes than they take up over the course of their time in Canada. No, for sure. I, I think the and the Globe wasn't certainly the first to make this observation, although it was built into their editorial. And we've written a lot about it recently in terms of efforts to redevelop the downtown. But um, this is, is because this is now where immigration slides into the affordable housing debate. So it's not about uh, the skilled trades. That's great. It makes perfect sense. But skilled trades who are building homes in sprawling su suburbs as in the creep of, of uh, large urban centers is not really uh, addressing the affordable housing crisis. Uh, density, true either not-for-profit or mixed income, mixed market, that kind of thing. And so all of a sudden you realize uh, maybe, I mean, the provinces will have a role, but I mean, really this puts the uh, federal government right in touch with local government. Uh, bylaw changes, uh, the ability to, you know, to put more high-density housing into older neighborhoods, everything. Um, I'm assuming that that dialogue connecting immigration and housing with local government is maybe, if it exists, it's at a very early stage. Uh, it, it is at an early stage. Uh, and uh, admittedly, there is more that we need to do on this conversation. We've just completed the consultation process for a strategic review of Canada's immigration policies. And one of the major recommendations that will come out of it, at risk of scooping my own report, uh, will be that we need to better marry uh, the absorptive capacity of communities with the number of people that we're welcoming. Uh, what we see when we have community-driven programs like the Rural and Northern mm -hmm. Immigration Pilot is that people arrive not only with a better opportunity to find homes, but with a community that's very supportive of them, uh, that sets them up for success. Uh, my vision for the longer term is that a series of different cabinet ministers should actually be signing off on the federal immigration levels plan. Uh, the idea that uh, the housing minister, the infrastructure minister, the health minister uh, don't have feedback into this conversation. They have many thoughts. We have informal For conversations. Sure. But from a governance structure's Single point table. of view, yeah. it would be so yeah. much stronger if those concerns were formally baked into the process. Uh, my sense is this is the, the next chapter uh, in terms of how we develop immigration programs to make sure that we're doing it in a way that recognizes immigration is not just about the people uh, who arrive here, but the communities that they live in, that they work in. Uh, and if we can uh, adapt the mindset that we should be adopting policies across uh, uh, ministries, 
uh, when it comes to population growth strategies. Uh, both the newcomers who arrive and the Canadians who've been here for generations uh, would be better served. So yes, it includes being plugged more closely into uh, municipal decision-making with programs we develop in the housing ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, the same way it's going to require us to engage with provinces and deal with health transfers in the health ministry. The same way it's going to, years from now, require us to be uh, properly funding uh, municipalities to plan their uh, water and wastewater infrastructure, decide where the ball field's going to go, uh, make decisions about where the next hospital is going to go in a, in a particular community. Um, these are questions that are uh, the source of really engaging conversations right now mm -hmm. uh, and represent the next frontier on not just immigration policy, but population growth policy in Canada. It's, it's, it's always fascinating to me when somebody proposes, as you have and others have, you know, yeah, we ought to have a single table where all of the relevant portfolios are there interacting together. And of course, to the uninitiated, the question is like, whoa, wait a minute. You you know, there isn't a formal process of, but of course, and that's that's not a criticism, but that is an excellent exploration of what government is about uh, and uh, how the silos don't always cross-pollinate. And um, so, you know, honestly, uh, it's not just that I wish you good luck with it. I, I think you've enunciated the problem. Well, I think everybody who's interested in this would like to think we're moving to uh, an evolved, you know, approach, you know. Yeah, yeah look, that, that's right. And, and make no mistake, we have conversations now between ministries, both ministerial colleagues talking to sure. one another, officials talking to one another. But I, I've seen when you um, develop a, a formal process uh, that brings together not just ministers who are excited to uh, yeah. chat on the phone about a new idea they have, uh, but people who are doing the deep dive policy work, people who know the individuals who head up settlement agencies uh, across this country, uh, people who understand that there's certain municipalities that don't have the ability to build out more wastewater infrastructure that will allow for population growth because of the geography or geology in that community. There's a number of different factors uh, that uh, lead to fantastic conversations. If you get the process right, right, and part of getting the process right is going to say, Here's my uh, suggested policy. Um, before we pitch this to our cabinet colleagues and adopt it as uh, the official government of Canada approach to immigration, I want the housing minister uh, to have his eyes on this. I want the infrastructure minister to formally sign off. Uh, I want the health minister to understand uh, more specifically how our policies will help bring the workers in that he needs, right. uh, rather than simply uh, being worried about more people to serve with existing resources. When you force these conversations into the formal process, uh, it leads to better and more thoughtful decisions, and, and sure. that's going to be part of the, the next step in this conversation. So uh, at the Nigan and the Lone Ranger podcast, I always try to say it once so people still you know, understand, we're still using that silly name. Um, uh, we didn't have a strict policy against it, uh, but I will say that um, it's been such a great conversation that I may actually ask other Montreal Canadiens fans on the podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't want to jump to any conclusions right now because I'm, I'm going to have to kind of see how I feel about this tomorrow. But uh, The thing is, dear listener, um, <laughs> you might think that Dan is being facetious, but I'm looking at his face right now and I'm seriously thinking that he's dead serious yeah you just you know the problem is you go into a podcast you never think you're going to talk to a Habs fan and then there he is right in front of you and that's oh, right geez. well look I, I come by it honestly when I was a kid I, I collected hockey cards like like so many of us did 
and um, my dad was a Habs fan, and I, I he bought me a pack of hockey cards, and um, uh, Russ Courtnell uh, was in one of the first packs mm. I ever opened when he pl- played for the Habs, and uh, his birthday is June 1st, which happens to be my birthday, uh, so he became my favorite hockey player for for that reason. And even uh, after he moved on, yeah. Well, no, look, I my, my affiliation. Uh, <laughs> I very quickly moved to to Patrick Y. Oh, okay. I still remember right. the uh, the ten overtime wins en route to the '93 Stanley Cup. The last time. Okay, well, so switching uh, switching topics right now. Just to remind yeah. everyone, other good sports are of course available. Yes, other good sports are available. Um, uh, Mr. Fraser, uh, a thanks for coming to Winnipeg to do some business. Thanks for sitting down and talking with us. Uh, lots of worthy work going on. We wish you the best of luck. And uh, it doesn't sound like you're going to get much of a summer holiday, but hey, you know, uh, you got to you got to strike while the iron is hot. So we appreciate your time and your effort. Well, thanks very much. And the good news is on summer holidays, uh, I, I live in Nova Scotia, just a few <laughs> minutes away from the Northumberland Strait, which is the warmest ocean water in Canada. So when I'm home, uh, I've got a seven-year-old and a uh, little guy who's about to turn two, and we'll we'll, we'll steal a few days at the beach okay. in between meetings. So we will. We are thanking you again and not shedding a tear for you this summer, um, Sean Fraser. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. What a great interview with the Honorable Sean Fraser, the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship. Uh, comes from Nova Scotia. I mean, interesting, you know, a couple things from the takeaways from the from the interview is one is he's really part of this younger brand within the Liberal Party. And I think someone to watch for going forward in the future, there is real strength of the Liberal Party mm-hmm. out east. We don't often see that on the prairies, especially since... You know, we're surrounded by a lot of sort of anti-liberal forces, particularly coming out of Alberta and Saskatchewan. But then the second is that, you know, we're really impacted by immigration here in Manitoba. A lot of uh, Ukrainians are being sent here. And of course, previously the Syrian population. Um, It's very interesting that you talked a lot about the Rainbow Railroad, because uh, as we started the podcast today, we were talking about um, issues in the community or in Manitoba around anti-LGBTQ uh, sentiment in the province and that we're advocating, openly advocating uh, in the federal government for people to come to the country who are being persecuted for their sexuality. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it was an interesting discussion with the minister, uh, particularly about the fact that this uh, initiative um, is happening now when, quite frankly, you know, there are the People's Party of Canada and various other extreme elements are, they're mimicking the attack on um, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation. That's that's really a huge issue in the United States. There, you know, we have our mimics here that are, are trying to create a similar culture war. And, you know, into this, like the federal government is announcing, uh, you know, a, a partnership with a, ra- a Rainbow Railroad to better identify people who need refugee protection. Uh, because of sexual orientation. And and I do not, this next comment, I don't mean to say that I doubt the sincerity of what the government is doing, but there are some uh, political benefits to what they're doing as well, because quite frankly, this is a file that the conservatives, like they have no cachet on, they don't know what to say. And, uh, you know, are they going to criticize it? Uh, you know, are they going to, you know, are they going to use some dog whistle terms? Are they just going to ignore it because they realize? So, you know, like I think, I think there is some smart tactical politics. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, like there's a by-election in Manitoba happening in seven days. 
one of the wedge issues between the People's Party of Canada, who doesn't really have a big foothold, but interestingly enough, are running the leader here in Manitoba and Portage Liscar. Uh, one of the wedge issues between that element of the party and or that element of the political side we'll call the right and then the Conservative Party is this issue around LGBTQ uh, and then all the other kind of issues that relate with that with gender and sexuality. And so that's interesting that the Liberals are putting a lot of attention into that issue because what it does is it presents the opposition with a difficult uh, decision of how do they intervene if they if they do it all. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, like it, it should be said that, um, you know, the Conservatives have... Um, you know, in the past, uh, you know, they've actually expressed support for refugee uh, determination based on sexual orientation. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like this, this will certainly put to a test their uh, commitment to, because, you know, with what's happening in Uganda and Russia and other countries, even the United States, for goodness sakes, like it is unsafe uh, in an increasing number of places to be uh you know to be a member of the lgbtq community openly uh you know in in terms of the trends that i've missed that's the one like the the backsliding that we've done in recent years i didn't see that one coming i thought i thought we were making progress towards the protection of uh of people on this basis but uh i am sad to be wrong i hate being yeah. wrong at the best of times but i'm sad to be wrong on this one so Sometimes you can get into islands, and I think it's important to, um, in that interview with Sean Fraser, reminded us that in areas of the world, there is still such great violence against people who are who are um, historically been disenfranchised in the past, either race, sexuality, and uh, that's still going on today in a much, and even in many cases, getting more violent than ever. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we may disagree about so many things, Nagan. We disagree about so many things. Right. We have yeah. to work on our disagreement. But on this, we agree. <laughs> yes, on this, we agree. You know. Um, well, I guess we both have to agree that uh, yet another great uh, interview that you did. And also that uh, the end, pretty soon of our summer programming, we're going to do a few more episodes here before we take the summer off. And uh, but thanks to everybody for supporting the podcast, everyone who's listening out there. Thanks to everybody at the Free Press, uh, editor Paul Simin and Wendy Sawatsky, who does all the tech to upload. And of course, our great friends at CGNU, uh, Adam, our producer, Adam, uh, and all the great people who support uh, CGNU has been very busy with their programming, getting themselves ready for taking some time off in the summer. So doing a lot of heavy lifting and so fitting us in doing the editing has been uh, a great appreciation of ours that they're doing that. And at the same time, uh, a big thanks to uh, you, Dan, yet again, for organizing a great interview and delivering that as I've been uh, dealing with some family issues and traveling. Um, and uh, let's hope that this week, uh, which we I will just sort of tip my hat that there is a very special interview we're doing this week and we'll be doing it together. So that's great. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Uh, you know, I, I actually have to figure out if I can process you know, like I've had the honestly, like based on what you and I do for a living, being able to do the interview on your own is pure pleasure. It's it's a <laughs> it's a luxury. What I have to share the questions now? Oh my god! Oh well, I well, don't week, know. Yeah, we'll we'll next do week's episode. I think will be very interesting for many of our listeners, <laughs> and uh, for particularly, you know, watch for the by election this week. I think there's an interesting mm -hmm. trends in Manitoba politics that isn't quite happening elsewhere in the prairies. And so watch for this week. I'm very interested to see what, what the uh, by-election will look like on the 19th 
Uh, yes. Uh, just a sec. Double check. It's June 19th is the election, the by-election. Yep, you're right. <laughs> oh, you, I can't believe you doubted me. Anyways, that Anyways. should wrap up the episode. Yeah, thanks very much, everybody. Bye.